G'day and thanks for tuning in to the Outpost Church podcast. We are in a series called How Did We Get Here? And it's really about looking back to the early church and then comparing to other times in history and going, how, when we started like that, did we get here? And in particular, we're looking at the last 504 years or thereabouts and some of the key moments and um, why they matter to the global church today. Hope it helps. Happy Reformation Day. It is 504 years since Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And um, I guess today is probably a little more well-known for being Halloween uh, in, in recent times. It certainly got a bit of traction four years ago when it was the big 500th anniversary. But what I'm keen to do over the next few weeks is just to have a look at how did we get here? If we rewind even further than 504 years ago, we get to that place in history where Jesus walked the earth and for those people who felt like they weren't good enough for God, he embraced them and made them realize that God had come to them and welcomes them and accepts them. For those people who felt like they were God's gift to humanity and to everybody else, he challenged them and brought some hard truths. But Jesus loved people where they were at and he gave them exactly what they needed to hear. And then Jesus says to his disciples, it is for your benefit, it is to your advantage that I leave. So Jesus, three and a half years hanging out with his disciples and then it's actually better for you that I'm not around. That's a bit weird. That doesn't make sense. And yet, Jesus was so convinced of the work of the Holy Spirit that he knew it was better that they would have the Holy Spirit with them, even in them, 24-7, than even the access they had, they personally had to him. And then as Jesus is crucified, he rises again, he spends that time with his disciples, and then he ascends up to heaven. Before doing that, he says to them, wait here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And so famously, there's 120 of them that are in an upper room in that moment when they received power from on high. There's this mighty rushing wind that is significant enough that thousands of people from that vicinity come rushing together to see what's going on. Accompanying the mighty rushing wind is these tongues like flames of fire that are resting on each of these 120 people in this upper room. They're speaking languages they've never learnt and they're proclaiming the wonders of God. So these thousands of people that have initially gathered because of this crazy noise stay because they are hearing the wonders of God proclaimed in their native tongue because they were originating from all over the world. And then Peter gets up and delivers his first ever sermon. And in that sermon, he says some pretty challenging things. Like he closes it off by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified, it's a pretty strong accusation right there to this crowd of people, God has made both Lord and Messiah. They are cut to the heart 
and they ask the question, brothers, what should we do? To which Peter responds, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And then with many other words, he exhorted them, saying, save yourself or be saved from this corrupt generation. We find out in the next verse that there's 3,000 people who said yes that day. And they repent, they are baptized, and they are added to their number. And then we read the next verse that says, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. If you want to open up to Acts chapter 2, let's just have a bit of a look at the end of this chapter, where we have what's often called the inauguration of the church, the beginning of the church. The church started off in this way. So they were, we discover what they were devoted to, the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship, and to prayer. And let's find out a bit more what it was like for that church. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That's a pretty vibrant community. That's a generous community. It's an expanding community. And it's a community that had significant impact on the larger community around them. It would be hard to ignore them. If they are being added to initially with 3,000 people on the one day, and then continually they're growing. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were generous with what they had. They were very much a community. It wasn't a group that just met together every now and then. They were daily doing these things, breaking bread from house to house, probably eating it as well, I would imagine. But they spent time together. They were devoted to what God had said through the apostles. They were devoted to prayer, devoted to that shared life together. And my question is, if this is the beginning, how did we get here? My question is, the time of the Reformation, can anyone tell me what was going on? Why did the church need reforming in the 16th century? Does anyone know something that was happening? Kind of. You had to buy your salvation. Yeah. What were you going to say, Letty? Yeah. So you had the sale of indulgences. So indulgences initially weren't buying a salvation so much, 
but it was a, a theology of penance. And so it was through Jesus Christ that you're forgiven. That bit had stuck. It was only through Jesus that they understood their forgiveness came. However, they needed some kind of earthly way of demonstrating their repentance. And so penance became this established order. And so you would do these things as a response. Jesus still was the one that gave you forgiveness, and it was by grace, but you need to do these things as well. But then the shift for Martin Luther happened when it went from being that you... There was this, there's this saying, and I don't know um, how reliable this particular statement is because we know it in English and it rhymes in English, so it may not have actually worked uh, in German and other languages, but when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The understanding behind that was that when you give money to the Pope's latest, you know, housing renovations, then one of your loved ones who's currently experiencing penance in purgatory, in other words, they are being prepared to be perfect and spend eternity in heaven, but right now are enduring hell. When you give money to the Pope's scheme, then suddenly your dead relative will be freed from purgatory and they will be able to enjoy the bliss of heaven. Pretty messed up idea. How the heck did you, you get from Jesus of Nazareth and his teaching, his challenging teaching of love, his challenging teaching that salvation is through him alone? No one comes to the Father but by Jesus He's the way, the truth, and the life. How do you get from that to there? It's a big jump. And the answer is there were centuries and centuries in the process. Lots of things took place. So one thing that people sometimes say, they refer to Constantine becoming a Christian and uh, the Christianization of Rome as the fall of the church. So in the 4th century, there was... Uh, this event that happened, there was also Armenia, uh, also Ethiopia, so two other nations that became officially Christian states. And those first 300 years of the church, the church is underground. The church is sometimes tolerated, sometimes persecuted, but never experiencing cultural power. But all of a sudden, Constantine has a conversion experience. And by the way, his conversion experience was that he was on his way to um, expand the territory of Rome and he sees this thing above the sun. It may have just been the sun that was messing with his eyes, but he saw something in the shape of a cross. Um, and in this sign, conquer. And then he has this dream the next night um, and he sees the chi ro, which is the first two letters of the name of Christ. Um, and he assumes from that that it's Jesus saying to him, you will conquer in my name. So his conversion has nothing to do with what we read in Acts just then. Repent and be baptized. There is no repentance in that. It is a means by which he was going to conquer more territory and get more fame and glory. And so Rome becomes a Christian nation and in the process, uh, you have all these people who I'm sure there were many who celebrated, many Christians who went, hang on a sec, we're not going to be persecuted anymore. 
We're not going to be covered with tar and set on fire. We're not going to be made sport of with all sorts of wild creatures. Fantastic. But there were many at that time who went out to the desert. Maybe you've heard of the desert fathers, desert fathers and mothers. These ones that went out initially as hermits and they went to live out their Christianity going, no, we can't live it in the cities if Christianity is going to be expressed in this way. And so they went out on their own. Um, And then the first monasteries came about because they went, hang on a second, we can't actually live out the Christian faith completely isolated on our own when the biggest, most consistent teaching of the New Testament is to love one another. (laughs) You can't do that alone. And it's not just about not annoying anyone anymore. And yes, you can probably be less annoying to people when you are living way away from them. But it's not just about what you don't do. It's what you actually contribute and what you actually give. And so the first monasteries came out of that. And one of the things that has has struck me, the more I look at things like Christian history, is that there has always been a remnant It's easy to look at a time like the Middle Ages and you see the excesses of the popes um, and this merging of church and state and just the nasty stuff that happened as a result and popes who are just about power plays and the history of the popes reading a lot like if you've read the book of Kings and Samuel and you see what the Israelite kings did and what a mess they made of things and the story of the popes reads quite similar to that. And it's easy to see these times in history and go, God wasn't there. It's easy for me to romanticize the early church and go, oh, that was perfect. And then it was just all corrupted. And then the Reformation, things got sorted out to a certain degree. But the reality is God has always had a remnant. There has always been those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so to speak, That's a reference back to Elijah who, after this amazing victory, goes into the deepest depression and he's complaining to God that he's the only one left. To which God says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He was not alone. There was a remnant who continued to be true to the God of Israel. There has always been a remnant throughout history. And whether... It's been Christian Rome, Christian Europe, Christian Australia. There has always been a remnant. Even in the times when it seems like Christianity has been the the dominant religion, a lot of the time it's cultural. A lot of the time it's going with the flow. We don't want to romanticize a particular time in history. We want to learn from it. We want to... Study this stuff so that we can glean from it and we can grow and we can not repeat the mistakes of the past, but rather learn from them and move forward. And as we look at a little bit to do with the Reformation, I want us to to learn from that and to grow. Um, Yeah, so the Reformation was a long time coming. There was excesses in the church that were just messed up. And you had people like John Wycliffe. So he was around in the 14th century um, and he translated the Bible into English and he's pushing back on indulgences. There was always voices of people that were pushing back on this stuff. You had John Hus, 
who was a century later, 15th century. And he again was pushing back on this stuff. But it was Martin Luther where the tipping point really happened. And those 95 arguments that he wrote down, his original plan was he wanted a debate. And so he nails him to the door. He's the professor in town um, at the university, nails these 95 arguments or 95 theses to the door. And it's primarily about indulgences. It's like we shouldn't be doing indulgences because it's switched over and it's not even about penance anymore. It's about salvation. This is messed up. And so he puts them up. They're in Latin, so the regular people can't understand what the heck they are anyway. But someone translates them into German and something just catches on fire. They're also sent, not with his authority, they were sent to, uh, to Rome. Um, and so the Pope gets his hands on them and all sorts of stuff blows up as a result. But the thing that it all came back to, people talk about the five solas of the Reformation. And sola simply means only. And it's kind of ironic that there's five things that are all the only thing uh, to do with the Reformation. But the, it was faith alone through grace. So it was grace alone through faith alone. Suddenly salvation, it's not about what we do. It's not about buying this thing. It is the grace of God that actually we receive salvation as a gift. It is through Christ alone. Such an important one. And it's the scriptures that are our ultimate authority. There's this thing called papal infallibility. What do you reckon papal infallibility means? Yeah, anything issued by the Pope is infallible. So if the Pope and the office of the Pope declare something, it is like God has spoken directly through that decree. That is a dangerous place to be where you can have the voice of one person or one office that becomes authoritative. And there was a push to bring it back to the Scriptures. But there were people like Wycliffe, not Wycliffe, sorry, like Tyndale. Actually, Wycliffe and Tyndale were both burned. But for both of them, it was after they had died. For Wycliffe, he was deemed a heretic after he had died. And so his... Um, grave was exhumed and his remains were burnt and then I think they were put in the water like there we go dealt with you whereas for um for Tyndale he was strangled and then burnt um he was declared a heretic while he was was still alive but both of these men translated the bible into English and the thing for them as well as for Luther so Luther translated the bible into German for these guys, they understood that the Bible needs to be in the hands of the everyday person. If we are going to actually follow Jesus, we want to have our faith dependent upon him and the most reliable access that we have to his life, to his teachings, to the teachings that came in the early church is through the Scriptures. And we get to read it for ourselves. And never has there been a time in history with more ready access to the Scriptures. It's ubiquitous. We have it everywhere. We have it in these copies. Most of us carry it around in our pockets. 
We have access to it that is unparalleled in all of history. But the tragedy of our day and time is that we don't make the most of it. The tragedy back then is they were willing to burn someone who wanted to make it available for the everyday person. The tragedy today is that we, the everyday people, don't make full use of it. Because it's always there, we're like, ah, oh, I'll do it another time. There's this story of um, the Bibles being um, sent over to China. And this is in the book Heavenly Man. Maybe you read that back in the day. Um, but they sent over these, these crates of Bibles and they actually got wet in the process of arriving at their destination in China. And so, oh man, <laughs> you have these guys who go through box after box after box of scriptures. They're going through Bible after Bible after Bible, page after page after page. You get the idea, drying it out one by one. And the words are written in there saying, more precious than gold. <laughs> They would rather have the scriptures than have wealth. So precious is this. There's, there's stories of the persecuted church where they're not allowed to have a Bible, where they get their hands on one, and because there's only one between a whole group of them, they will tear the thing up, and you will have a different chunk each. And in some cases, they will memorize the chunk that they have. And when they finish memorizing that, they'll swap it for somebody else's, and then they will continue on. There's this thing about scarcity. Scarcity will usually create hunger. We have abundance. What can we do? How can we generate hunger for what we have in abundance? Something shifted for me 20 years ago, and I had... I was doing an internship at a church and I had to set my own goals for the year. The only goal I can remember setting was I was going to read a book a month. And one of those books was the Bible. I didn't need to read it in a month, but, you know, 12 books across the year. And I was halfway through my internship. I had read one other book um, and I was in Exodus. And if you know your Bible, there's 66 books in the Bible and that is number two. Um, so... Halfway through the year, I wasn't doing that well. But something that I did that was incredibly helpful was that I committed to read the Bible, but alongside reading the Bible, I started reading biographies. And I read biographies of some of the people that I just mentioned, of like Wycliffe and Tyndale and Luther. Reading about people who died in order to get the Bible into the hands of other people it's amazing how just putting yourself in a position where you can be influenced by someone who is or was incredibly hungry will make you hungry. Hunger and passion is contagious. If you give yourself a chance to get hungry, to get passionate, good things will happen. Whether it's reading biographies, whether it's listening to podcasts, watching YouTube, any of those sorts of things, it's, it's helpful to put yourself in a position and not just to go, I'm just going to listen to podcasts. Something that I've recommended to people more often than I've actually done myself, that's my disclaimer, um, is when you're finding yourself in a place where it is hard to engage with the Scriptures, 
watch or read something until you want to engage with the scriptures. Like often we start watching something and we feel ourselves being a bit hungry for the scriptures and then we just keep watching the thing rather than, oh, I'm going to pause that or put a bookmark in the book and then I'll pick up the scriptures and read it. Now that I've got that hunger for it, you've developed the hunger, now you get to feast. So one of the key learnings, one of the key takeaways from the Reformation is access to the scriptures and we have it. Praise God for the Reformation. Praise God for some of the things that happened around that because of the access we now have to the Scriptures. But we take it for granted. So what do we do to fight against taking it for granted? And then that other big one is just around faith. Like it is by faith alone. That's our only contribution to all this stuff. And so it impacts upon us and it impacts upon others. Like it's easy for us to write off other people because they don't normally come to church or because of things they do or they don't do. Like the house that I drove past on the way down here um, that have set up their front yard um, to worship Satan, you know, over this Halloween period. Um, And it's easy just to to write them off. It's like, go past, don't be intimidated by it, but just pray for them. If there's an opportunity, get around them and have a chat. But let's understand that it is by faith alone. It is not the culture we're a part of. It is not our history. It's not what our parents have or haven't done. It is by faith alone. It is simply by believing. So the scripture, if you want to flick over to the next book, uh, we were at uh, Acts. If you go to Romans chapter 1, two very famous verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says the following. There are some Bibles in there. I'll just hear if you don't have one and want to grab a physical copy. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So verse 16 starts off, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, The gospel is worth revisiting on a daily basis. The gospel is what we are saved by, but it is also what we live by. Understanding what Jesus has done for us. And the gospel sometimes summarized as Jesus died for you. And that is definitely a significant part of the gospel. But the gospel can only be summarized as Jesus. Like it is him. It is the life that he lived as well as the death that he died, and it's the life that he continues to live as the indestructible one. That is still the gospel. The gospel is much bigger than just the significant, huge reality that he died for you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of what it does for me, what it does for you, what it does for anyone who believes, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's interesting As you read (laughs) to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and also to the Greek, it's so easy for us to get stuck on why the Jews first. You know, you read, we've just heard that it's for everyone who believes. And we're like, that's not fair that the Jews get it first. Why would the Jews get it first? I mean, we could go to the next chapter um, and we can read about the consequences 
that are for the Jew first, and then the consequences that come to the, uh, the Greeks later on. Verse 9 of chapter 2. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It goes both ways. But the biggest point is that it is to everyone who believes. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you are included simply by believing. Verse 17, for in it, it being the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The NIV says it's from faith from first to last. It is by faith from first to last. At the end of Romans 11, um, it says all things are from him and through him and to him. To God be the glory. It's from him. He's the initiator. It's to him. He's the ultimate recipient. And he's the means by which it happens. He's pretty involved. (laughs) He's thoroughly involved in this process. It is all through him. 100% through him. So if we're going to have faith, the purpose of faith is that we would know him more. And we would be his. But it's all his gift to us. And that final quote, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So our faith or our belief or our trust is to be in him. And like we, we live in this space. Like as a, as a church, there are many things that would divide us. And I, I say that as outpost. I say that as the, the church right around the world. You know, and you know, we're in the midst of this, this pandemic and we've got people within the church that are on both extremes uh, in terms of their understanding of, of how that plays out and what our response should be. But it is Jesus that we put our faith in. Amen. We're not putting our faith in the, the government. We're not saying it's the government that is our saviour. The government is going to sort everything out. But we're also not putting our trust in, in people that are saying that the government is corrupt and, oh, of course, we put our trust in that person because they have that opinion. You know? We're not putting our trust in, in any individual other than Jesus. So our faith is in him. And the way that we live our life is going to reflect the fact that he is in charge. He is and number one, I want us to take a little bit of time um, to reflect on some stuff in a minute. I'm going to put up on screen those, those five solas. I'll put a couple of verse references up there and have a chance just to sit and unpack those things together. Really from that view of, like, what is it that we can learn from this? Yes, I see that hand. October the 31st. Strangers in the world. There's a quote from Hebrews 11, verse 16. They desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The American philosopher Henry David Thoreau suggested that we should live so simply that if an enemy overtook our town, we could walk out of the gate empty-handed and without anxiety. It is a reminder to us as Christians that we should travel light, remembering that this world is not our home. 
In the Bible, when Pharaoh asked Jacob's age, the old man replied, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Shortly before he died, King David prayed, we are aliens and pilgrims before you. In discussing Old Testament heroes, the writer of Hebrews 11:13 calls them strangers and pilgrims on the earth. He says they desired a better country and were looking for a city that God had prepared for them. Therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. The Bible says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Remember, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven, but citizens of heaven making their way through this world. Amen. Thanks, Sharon. We're going to pray and we're going to sing one more song. So I invite the band to come on up. So Father, I want to thank you that you invite us to have our security completely in you. That we would trust you with our very selves, with our very lives. And Lord, I've got a long way to go. I don't want to trust my own self-sufficiency I don't want to trust in other things and put my hope in anything other than you and I confess that I have failed but I also declare that you are able to keep me from stumbling and present me faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy thank you that you are the only wise God. I thank you that you are good and you have good things in store for each and every one of us. I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of you. I pray that we would put our trust and our hope in you. And that our families, our workplaces, our neighborhood, our schools, would be transformed as you do your good work in and through us and to those around us. Have your way. Thank you for Jesus. Hallelujah. Just invite you guys to stand to your feet when you're ready.